This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Morena no maikiti korero e ranga itereo erangi on a tangata o Manawatu. Welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio. Uh, it is a Tuesday morning, and that means we turn our attention to the institution on the hill that is Massa University. Uh, and uh, with us via Zoom this morning, uh, we have Professor Richard Shaw, a professor of politics at Massey's College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and has the pleasure of being the first academic I ever met in New Zealand. Atamare Richard. <laughs> I had forgotten that phrase out. I do remember meeting you. I forgot that I was the first one. It's lovely to see you again and to, and, and to have a chance to talk. How are you? Uh, not too bad. And surprisingly, we're not really in your professional wheelhouse with the interview this morning, which is surprising because <laughs> I would think you'd be quite busy right now. <laughs> It, it, there is a, there's always lots going on, but there just seems to be more than any other time I can remember. Stuff going on both at home and abroad. And frankly, Fraser, I'm grateful for the chance to just veer away and talk about something slightly different. Well, I was tempted to ask you about Ukraine there, but we won't. We, 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 and we've discussed that at length with journalists and things on the catch-up. So, so let's yeah. look at, at this, what, what I would call a bit of a passion project for you. It's a book you've written called The Forgotten Coast, and it's described as a powerful memoir about racism, the Catholic Church, and fathers. Uh, that needs a bit of unpacking. Um, what I will say is it seems to focus around uh, three men in your life, your your father, your great-uncle Dick or Richard, and your great-grandfather Andrew. And Andrew's the sort of s- the start of this story. Yeah, he's, he's the one who's probably of most interest. Um, th- I, d- I didn't write that particular description of the book, uh, and I'll leave it for people who've read it to determine whether or not it really is all that powerful. But it has attracted a bit of interest, Fraser, not so much about Dad, um, and not so much about Dick, who was a, just a very interesting, brilliant young member of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I mean, happy to talk about both those guys, but the, the person in that book who's attracted most attention has been my great-grandfather, Andrew Gilhooley, for two reasons. Um, one, because he was present for the invasion of Parihaka. Uh, he was a member of the armed constabulary. He was part of the occupying force that stayed at Parihaka for up to four years. Um, and then he came back nine years later and he farmed three farms, three family farms uh, that were part of the 1,275,000 acres of land that were confiscated by the colonial government in 1865. So, you know, most people these days have heard about Pariaka um, and until I wrote this book, I had absolutely no idea that I had an ancestor who who was there at the pointy end. 
So, well, that, that's an interesting point. What was the, the book going to be? If it's taken a sharp right turn where you've discovered which I, what I think has been referred to as the, the untold story of your family, uh, what was your starting point? Starting point was my dad's death. Um, he died on Christmas Eve in 2012. And that just sat for some years. But... There was a there was there were conversations that I never had with my father that I would have liked, in retrospect, to have had. So the book really started out, just because this is what I do for my day job as a, as a pointy head. I, I write stuff out, so I started writing stuff out about that um, four or five years ago, and one thing sort of spiraled into another, and then it became a story about the relationship between my father and my mother, who was from coastal Taranaki. I don't really know how it became the thing that it became, Fraser, but at some point in that process, it became pretty clear that I couldn't talk about my father and I couldn't talk about Dick, who has fascinated me for years, uh, for reasons which I'm happy to get into, without acknowledging how they came to be in that part of the country, how they came to stand on that land. I don't think I'm the only non-Māori person who's whose history is sometimes characterised by silences rather than stories. And this particular silence, which I'm not attributing to anybody, but it's not an unusual one, I think, for particularly settler families like mine to start their history, start their accounts and their stories and their memories with the purchase of the family farm and not to go back beyond that. And for a bunch of reasons, I went back beyond that. And what I found was really disquieting for me. And so I wrote it up because that's what I do. Well, and, and, and I guess, I mean, this is probably quite timely as, as New Zealand starts to, I think, embrace with a, a bit more uh, realism or a bit more genuine nature the idea of being a bicultural country and not a, a colony and certainly not run by colonial. Uh, we're not there yet, but it's that, that, that narrative is starting to come through in, in, a, in a bit more special way. And your story, whilst unique in its finer details, is probably not an isolated case, if I could, no. uh, uh, if I could underestimate entirely. I mean, if you are a, 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 a white New Zealander, a, a, a descendant of the colonials, you've probably got some skeletons in your closet that could do to be unpacked and examined because white New Zealanders need to form an identity that can't, isn't necessarily founded on the bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's nothing in the book, notwithstanding a couple of comments that I've had from people who've taken it upon themselves to tell me so, there's nothing in the book that's accusatory or judgmental or it isn't It isn't found upon shame or guilt. All it is is a book that tries to tell a more honest story than the one that I grew up with and told myself. And I, and I think you're right. Um, my great-grandfather was a member of the Armed Constabulary, I want to come back to him in a minute if that's okay, but I but I know that of the 18,000 or so members of the Imperial Regiments who served in this country between 1840 and 1870, about 20% of those guys discharged in and remained in New Zealand. And most of them were Irish. My great-grandparents came from Ireland as well. So you've got a, you've got a significant number of people from e- even the earlier phase of military activity in this country who, who came out as part part of the Imperial Regiments and remained here. My my people were not associated with that phase. My great-grandfather was part of the Armed Constabulary, which was established in part to fill 
were whole left by the regiments when they left in, in 1870, in the early 1870s. Um, and I think that it's reasonable to say that certainly in my family, and I'm not alone, there is a particular story that's told about the pioneers and the settlers. And I've no reason whatsoever to believe that my family and coastal Taranaki were not hard-working, diligent people. They left pretty miserable circumstances in Ireland. They came out here. They established themselves in a new world. They, they created an entirely new kind of way of being. Coastal Taranaki, for people who come from there, has got a really specific feel to it and the character of it. And some of that is tied up with the nature of the, of the Roman Catholic Church in Coastal Taranaki. So there's this big kind of Irish backstory, but I think the, the, the great paradox for me and the reason why I spent such a lot of time trying to get that book together and to get it right is because that 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 identity, that, that sense of, of being foundation members of a colonial society in Taranaki, it's all based on stolen land. We talk about confiscation. Really, it was a land grab. Exactly the same thing that was visited upon my Irish ancestors was visited upon Manufena up in Saranaki, also in the Waikato and in the Bay of Plenty. But we just use different language to describe it. So there's a sort of an Irish paradox there. But there was some, there was some, there was some history behind those farms. It's not everybody's history. It's not every Pargat person's history, but it is mine. And the 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 difficult stuff out of which the good story of the family farms comes is often not told, I think. So I just wanted to tell it in, in my in my in the context of my family. I don't, I don't, I'm not speaking for anybody else. I don't presume to speak for other people. I don't even really presume to speak for people in my family. There were other other versions of the story, um, but at 57 years of age, it's slowly dawned on me that it is not possible to subscribe to my part in the in the great colonial story of settling this country without being conscious of the unsettling effects that my great-grandfather's involvement with the armed constabulary and parihaka and the settling and farming of confiscated land had on other people. You've got to have both those things. So in writing this book, there's an element of Catharsisism, if that's the, not Catholicism, that's a different part of the book. Um, but there's a cathartic nature to this for you. I, do you feel a need to try and right some of the historical wrongs? I, I mean, I don't know if the farm still exists or uh, w- what. What you want to do to maybe reset the compass a bit? Yeah, I do. Uh, and there is a there is a very lively conversation going on in parts of the national community about what that might look like. There is, I mean, you, you'll be aware of it, I'm sure, and many of your listeners will be as well. There's a there's a sort of a hashtag land back conversation that's taking place. Hand the land back. I'm not sure that that's, I don't know how you do that, actually, because part of, part of the difficulty is you have, you have a crown that is establishing a system of governance in which it claims for itself sort of first right of refusal on land, including Eight, eight, 8 million or so hectares, I may stand corrected on that, that exact number, but it's in that vicinity of acres of land that it confiscates under legislation like the Suppression of Rebellion Act and the New Zealand Settlements Act in the, in the mid-1860s. And then it sells that stuff on to other people. In the case of my great-grandfather, 
he was not granted land because he continued his military career past the point at which that could have happened. So he purchased land, which had been confiscated from other people by the state and then sold on. So there's no there's no kind of economic return to Māori. What there is is a whole series of, of negative consequences that attach to people when you take their land off them and you destroy their economic means of production and so on. Then that land is subsequently sold on to other people. So we haven't, my family hasn't had that land for 50, just shy of 50 years. It's since been sold to other families and that land has been aggregated into a, a large corporate land holding in Saranaki. So giving the land back is um, it's just not an option, I think, in many in many cases. What is, a, what is one of the reasons why I've written that book is because that's something that I can do because of the nature of my job. Um, one of the things that I do is I write. And so I can write a book that tells what I think is a more factually accurate story, attach a series of reflections to it and put it out there in the world and see what happens. And then I can spin off little articles. I can do things like this, take up opportunities to have conversations. So the the, the, the nature of the life that I lead is such that the thing that I can do is revisit some of those sacred cows, no pun intended there, tell a better history, be more frank about it, have conversations with people who are interested in talking about this stuff. Uh, if you've just joined us, we are with Professor Richard Shaw from Massey University talking about his book, The Forgotten Coast. Uh, as I said before, a powerful memoir about racism, the Catholic Church and fathers. And it seems, Richard, that we so, we have three parts and it, I think it would be useful to look at another part. I, I see the, the part about your father as being quite personal and unpacking those conversations that you didn't have a chance to have. Uh, people might be able to relate to that. Uh, obviously, you've said Andrew um, being involved in Parihaka and, and subsequently acquiring land that has uh, got people's attention as far as this book is concerned but you are most interested in Dick um, yeah. who who was uh, I think as you've said uh, part of the Catholic Church and was it, went to the Vatican? Yeah, yeah, you did, yeah the, Dick, Dick interests me for uh well, I was, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, but have relatively little to do with it now. Dick interests me because for 40 years of my life, I've lived and worked in universities. And Dick, Dick got a Doctor of Divinity through the Lateran University in Rome. He studied, he lived in and studied at the Irish Pontifical College in Rome. And he finished this doctorate at the age of 22, which is a kind of a stunning, like, that's, I don't know, what, I don't even know what I was doing at the age of 22. Was it, I think I might have been at university. It was kind of a third of the way through my first degree. And Dick had completed three degrees, including a doctorate, within the space of 18 months. So he, he has long fascinated me because he was, a, he was an academically precocious young guy. The Catholic Church, the hierarchy had lined him up from a long way out as a bright person. I, I don't have any doubt that they had him, had him, that tapped his shoulder and were, were positioning him for a political career in the church. So sent him off to Rome at the age of 19 to live at the Pontifical Irish College, studied there for 18 months, completed three degrees, picked up tuberculosis, came home and spent the rest of his life dying. Um, but so Dick, Dick comes to me because he's just a fascinating story about a young guy who came from coastal Taranaki, wound up in, at the heart of Roman Catholicism, came home with tuberculosis and spent the rest of his life in and out of hospitals, full-length body casts, getting to grips with the fact that a, a promising religious and political career had been kiboshed by illness. The, the other thing about Dick that interests me, I think, is that whilst my family has lots of stories about Dick 
great boxer, bright kid, went to Rome, got tuberculosis, came home, really good singer, sang around the country at weddings, raising money to donate to religious orders. We don't have any stories at all about his father, Andrew, who had come out of the armed constabulary. So that's the other thing about Dick. Dick's job in this book is to also demonstrate how there are some stories that we tell and there are some stories that we don't. You know, there, 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 are, some, there are some particular uh, historical facts about the three farms that my family had through until the 1960s and 70s, and, and we might go into those if we've got time. But they... Um, when, when Dick is born, the farms are purchased and then people just, in, in, in historical terms and, and, and in my family, then there's just silence about Parihaka and the consequences. People just stop talking about it. So there's lots of stories about Dick and my grandfather, who was Dick's oldest brother. Loads and loads and loads of stories about that part of the family history. And they're all creation stories. This is how the family came to be on the coast in Taranaki. They're all, they're all sort of myths and legends, metaphorically but they're quite selective and they don't cover off some of the other stuff. So, so Dick's job is to point out that um, he came out of a particular set of social circumstances, the, the full history with which is not acknowledged even at the time. It, it, so it's a, it's an interesting because you say you know the, the story of Parry Hacker just wasn't told in your house once everything had sort of settled down a bit. Again, that is not unique to your family. Family from the little I've learnt about New Zealand, it, it was I mean regarded as as shameful quite quickly after the fact, if memory serves. But I find it interesting that Scots and Irish repressed people back in the UK would come over to New Zealand and do exactly the same thing that had happened to them. And I wonder if that's where the shame came from. I wonder if, I, I, I think that's a really powerful working hypothesis, Fraser. Andrew Gilhurley, my great-grandfather, was the third of ten children who were born to Hugh and Mary Gilhurley. Mary Gilhurley had been a Kennedy before she married my great-great-grandfather. And the Kennedys were what are known in the east of Limerick anyway as land grabbers. They were, they were moved on to a 73-acre block of land in the early 1800s with the support of the Royal Irish Constabulary. They were, they were, they were poor peasant farmers, but their job was to displace another guy, Mr Mulhoney, who hasn't been paying his rent, so he's evicted. He's got the agrarian equivalent of a zero-hours contract. He's got no protection whatsoever. The ROC clear him out with the support of the local courts and they, they place another tenant farming family, the Kennedys, on that land. My great-great-grandfather marries the daughter of Mr Kennedy. He carves off 29 acres worth of land. It's, it's still a zero-hours contract. It was called an at-will contract at the time. Mary and Hugh have, have 10 children. One of them is my great-grandfather. He leaves Ireland in 1874, comes out here, joins the Armed Constabulary in 1877. So he's born into that, that tradition of dispossessed Irish people. And, and the land on which he was born, I can trace that land all the way back to the 1600s when there's a land grab by the English under Cromwell. And that land is given to a man who becomes the Mayor of London, uh, serves in the House of Representatives. He's a, he's a senior member of Oliver Cromwell's administration. And then it passes in and out of various other people's ownership, but it never returns to the ownership of the people who held it in the first instance. So there's that part of it. 
So Andrew comes out here and he eventually winds up farming on land which has been taken from other people. So so you're right, there, there is a hypothesis that says, well, he's just recreating the conditions into which his family were born, but in some other part of the world to a different kind of another sort of Indigenous people. The other thing that has struck me as a paradox um, for a long time did was the fact that he, he was a Roman Catholic. He joined an institution, the Armed Constabulary, which was established along the lines of the Royal Irish Constabulary. And I've just, like three days ago, was reading because this is a kind of um, thing that I do in my spare time, reading the parliamentary record behind the 1867 uh, Armed Constabulary Act. And it's really clear that at the time the administration wants basically a paramilitary force that looks exactly like the Royal Irish Constabulary. And Andrew joins that out here. But that becomes, that looks a bit less like a paradox when you dig into it, because it turns out that around about the time that he joined up, back in Ireland... 70%, 75% of all of the NCOs and the foot soldiers in the Royal Irish Constabulary are Roman Catholic. And about 80% of the officer class are Protestant. So there's a religious divide there. But I had always assumed wrongly that the Royal Irish Constabulary did not feature a whole heap of Catholics, but it did maybe for employment purposes, you know, regular employment uh, post-famine, there were not a whole lot of economic opportunities going around. So there is there is a paradox, but it's sometimes a bit more complex than I had thought that it would be. Uh, I need to ask you, and this seems a bit out of left field, but the, the picture on the front cover of your book, The Forgotten Coast, is that you? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's me holding up a, a tuna, an eel, and scoffing some lollies or something. I don't know. My dad took it. It was we, we were. I was seven or so, and it's on that. It, it's it's on the coast. It's on. It's it's not actually on the land that had previously been in my family. It's on uh, an uncle's land, but it's that part of the Taranaki coast. And yes, it is me. Um, we are here with uh, Professor Richard Shaw talking about his book, which was written uh, late, well, released later last year, uh, The Forgotten Coast, uh, a story basically unpacking the, the story of his family as it settled here, some of the uncomfortable truths that had hitherto been unmentioned, uh, and putting at ease some, some memories and conversations uh, that he wanted to have with his father, but sadly couldn't. Um, is this a book, Richard, that is meant to lead by example? Do you want other people to actively explore their histories? And do you know of, of simple ways to do that? Because we're not all research uh, uh, attuned like you might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very conscious, Fraser, that I am in the hugely privileged position of getting paid to do this kind of stuff. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I've been doing it for 30, 40 years, so, so I'm, I know how to do this. It's It's... As I've said before, it's just a day job. Um, I don't, I, I don't in any way set myself up as an example for others to follow. I, I'm not. There's no suggestion in there that uh, that I'm doing something new or different. There have been Pago people, New Zealand Europeans doing this sort of work for a long, long time. So I'm, I'm just the latest in a in a long line of people who many of whom have put in far harder yards over much longer periods of time than I have. So um, so I just wanted to get that off my chest. But, but have, you, have, you, have you managed to do it in a more, uh, in perhaps a more approachable way as, as a book as opposed to per- maybe an academic paper or an, an item of research? I mean, Paul Diamond reviewed the, the book on RNZ, called it his book of the year. 
yeah. I thought that was really lovely of him. Um, I mean, Paul Diamond is, a, is one of my sort of heroes, and for him to say that was just a very, it was a really nice thing for him to say and for me to hear. Um, you know, I leave it to others to, the book has been well reviewed. I, uh, I leave it for others to make judgments on it. What I did try to do is not an academic book at all. It's just a, I mean, I've written it as a, as a, just as a, um, a lay person who, because I'm not a historian, I'm not a treaty specialist, I've never done anything in this area, or I don't know anything about this stuff. I just sort of spent a whole lot of time digging around in the archives and the parliamentary record and the, and the wills and the legislation and the cadastral maps and so on, because it just became really super interesting. A lot of that information is not all that hard to find. What I do have, which lots of other people don't have, is time. It's built into my job, so I have the time to do this. But one thing that has fascinated me, Fraser, is the number of... Like it runs to the hundreds, not a lot of hundreds, but a couple of hundred people who have contacted me saying, generally the, the conversation goes like this. They say, okay, that was good. Thanks for the book. Uh, enjoyed it. Didn't entirely agree with this, but loved that part. And now let me tell you about my story. And there are hundreds, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds of people who've contacted me at length to say, this is what has been bothering me for five years or 70 years. I did a presentation on this um, to a Rotary Club in Palmerston North, and at the end of it, a woman who I reckon would have been, I would think, easily in her late 80s and possibly early 90s, came up to me afterwards and said, I need to talk to you, and I need to talk to you right now. So we sat down and we had a cup of tea, and she talked to me, and she told me this really extraordinary story about what had happened to a collection of carved Māori Po, which had been formed the perimeter of a cemetery in Urupa on her father's land in the 1930s. That land was sold in the 1940s. Uh, things happened to those Po, which all these years later distressed her. She was a young child at the time. She was visibly distressed and she just wants to talk about it. So I think there are are a lot of people out there who have stories like mine. They've got their own versions. It might not involve confiscation, but it, but it's something that they just feel uh, strongly about and they're looking for opportunities to tell it. So the next thing for me might be to find some way of bringing some of those things out into the public domain. Is there, we've only got a couple of minutes left and I've left one of the very important questions to last, which is usually how I do things because I'm not a professional. Um, did you engage with Mana Fenua as part of writing the book or have you done that since as a way to try and at least get both sides of the origin of your family farms right in your head and as accurate as possible? The, well, both, but the former is the one that I think is um, the former was important to me because there's a woman called Rachel Buchanan who um, I've read a lot of, and she she's Parker woman, but she has Tiatiawa Fokapapa as well, and she just has some really interesting words of advice for non Māori like me who want to write about contested areas like Parihaka or confiscated land on the Taranaki coast. And one of the things that I did not want to do is publish the book and wind up putting out in the public domain stuff, stories, names, events, episodes that were not really mine to to work with. And so the manuscript of the book went uh, to certain people in certain places before it was published just to make sure that it was that it was all going to be accepted or acceptable or non non 
non-offensive, uh, not intrusive in other people's lives, um, and and that and 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 I was given the the all clear to, to go ahead with that, and subsequently have also had some involvement with Manafina up there. But you've got to be a little bit careful that you don't wind up using the stuff for your own purposes. So I have used it for my purposes, but I took quite a long time to to do as much as I could to ensure that I would not be trampling on other people's mana in the process of doing so. If uh, we, we are out of this conversation could go on for a long time but sadly we are out of time uh, we might have to get Richard back because there's there's so much more we could unpack here uh, if you've been listening in or you've just uh, missed a, a bit of it it's The Forgotten Coast a book by Professor Richard Shaw from Mass University uh, you can get all the information at uh, massypress.ac.nz uh, you can order the book there as well uh, Professor Richard Shaw thank you very much for joining us on the catch up this morning Thank you very much for having me, Fraser. Really appreciate it. And remember, if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the Catch Up series, just head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch up. Back tomorrow with Jimmy Ellingham uh, from Radio New Zealand. Make sure you join us then, half past eight. Have a good day. Bye for now. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.